Hi, welcome to a new episode of Breaking and Entering, the podcast that brings you the stories behind fund managers with interesting career paths. I'm your host, Daniel Ruiz, investment reporter for Citywide Selector in London, and our guest today is Regina Borromeo, portfolio manager for the global macro team within Robico and director of global macro fixed income and sustainability. She joined the Dutch company in 2018 from Brandywine Global Investment Management, where she worked for seven years. However, and here comes the plot twist, Regina has always played squash to a very high level, most recently competing with the Philippines team in the Asian Games in 2018. Hello, Regina. Great. Thank you for, for having me, Daniel. It's a pleasure to uh, be on this podcast. Before getting into detail about the Asian Games experience, let's start from the beginning. When and how did you start playing squash? So I actually picked up squash when I went to boarding school when I was 13 in, in the U.S. So I left home in Manila um, to go to boarding school. And actually, I was a very competitive tennis player. And at that time, the squash coat was encouraging many of the tennis players to play squash or pick up squash during the winter season. One of her selling points was, um, you know, four of the, the, the senior women were accepted early to uh, the Ivy League schools, uh, Harvard and, and Yale. So that was, uh, that was uh, one of the attractive points of, of, of picking up squash because, you know, it did help build you know, educational uh, background and, and career. And that's where I learned how to um, first start playing squash at, at 13 years old. But I, as I said before, you know, I've been playing sports even since I was like five years old. I started out as a swimmer. My father and, and my, my siblings were all swimmers, but actually I kept getting a nasal or, or, or cold. Um, so when I was seven, I was having a conversation with my dad saying that I don't really want to swim anymore. And he's well, he said, well, you can't, you can't be a bum and, and not do anything after school. So I had to decide what to do. And, and then we, we actually uh, went for tennis um, because there was a tennis court um, near where we lived. And, and then, yeah. And then, then, you know, sort of, I, I played almost every, every day and I, I uh, became a, a pretty um, competitive tennis player when I was, when I was quite young. And to this day, are you enamored of squash now more than tennis? Or do you still like tennis as well? I think, um, you know, it's strange because um, even though I started tennis first, I think that if you really want to uh, succeed in tennis or be sort of competitive or, or have, you know, sort of professional dreams or going to Wimbledon, when you're a young girl, you have to actually decide probably when you're 11 or 12 if you want to turn uh, or go towards, you know, professional tennis. And um, at the time, I actually played for the Philippine junior tennis team. I, I made it on, on the national team. And, you know, it's it was an incredible experience when you're 11 and 12 traveling around Asia. Um, but I think at that time, I did have a bit of self-awareness in the sense that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's always great to have dreams, but you also have to be realistic with those dreams. And, you know, I knew that I probably, I, I was very good at that time. But I probably knew as a career that, you know, to live off being a tennis player, you probably have to be in the top 100 of the world. And I probably knew that I wasn't, uh, 
I wasn't excellent enough to be a hundred of the world, but I could probably use my sport to um, open doors for me and and get a better education at that time. So that's that's actually what I decided to do was actually use uh, sports to actually um, improve my educational opportuni- opportunities. And now I just you know sort of just continue to play squash really because that's uh, a better balance in in my. Uh, you know, professional career, you know, you can have a, a great squash match uh, in 20 to 30 minutes. But with tennis, it takes about an hour to two hours to have a, a full game or a doubles match. So it's, it's a bit more efficient in, in my in my schedule to play squash. <laughs> you said your father was a swimmer. So then I take that sports tradition is in the family somehow. I think with, with my family, they always believed in, in, in having a balance in, in life. I, I come from actually a family of, of professionals or academics. Um, and I think that I was lucky to be exposed with, um, you know, actually very strong independent women who were educated, but also very supportive um, men. Um, so yeah, I think that, you know, as a family, we were, you know, quite competitive. And I think that really drove me to to continue to, to succeed and, and, you know, Try to always win, but also learn from from you know the losses that I had in 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 the court. Mm-hmm. You said you joined tennis lessons sort of by chance because there was a court next to uh, the area you used to live. When did you think I like this and I want to play this for as many years as I can? I mean, I think it was just more that you know I I, I enjoyed training and then I started winning matches against some of the um, the older club players and then when I joined junior tournaments, I, I started winning. And, and then um, then it was about, you know, getting up in the rankings in the country and, and, and being in the national team. But then it kind of gets, you know, quite a com- competitive process. Um, at the time when you, you know, when you're a teenager, you probably get annoyed when your parents are, are around you all the time. But I think that in hindsight, you know, I think I was very lucky to have, you know, my dad, you know, drive me everywhere and and be there in the tennis in, in in the tournaments, and I think that, you know, that that was a very strong foundation. I think you know, and that's one of the things that is is important in later on in your life is that you know you people succeed when they have a strong support system, and it, it's not just with sports, but I think when you have um, you know job or careers and companies, I think that's one of the things that is very important is when you have you know strong support systems to enable you to succeed and i think that's one of the things that you know when you look at you know my my profession now you know you see many companies have employee resource groups or mentorship because you you do need that type of framework to encourage people to um you know sort of move to their potential whatever that may be and i think that's very important i think i was very lucky to have that uh, when i was quite young Regina trained and studied at the Phillips Exeter Academy. To put things into context, the Phillips Exeter Academy is among the top, if not the top, elite uh, boarding school in the US. Alumni that might sound familiar are Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Meta Platforms, writers Dan Brown and Roxanne Gay, and Wynne and Will Butler, founding members of rock band at Cave Fire. Regina, how was the experience? 
it was uh, you know tremendous you know honor and um, you know privilege to to be there when when I moved from Manila to to Exeter. I mean, I think that it was a place where, as you said, you know, very highly successful people in, in their different fields went to in their formative years. You know, has a very strong history. I think one of the things that I learned there was that the best education was from each other. So all of our classes are based on the Harkness table. So it's a round table. We basically discuss and learn um, the different theories of, of the different subjects. So it's not lecture driven. It's actually learning from your peers and, and gaining knowledge um, you know, through through each other. So I, you know, that was actually the first place that I really um, learned about, you know, the, the diversity of thought. Um, you know, coming from, you know, a small island nation, you don't, you kind of get exposed to the same type of thinking, the same type of people. And at Exeter, you know, it truly got exposed to people from different social backgrounds, different ethnicity, different races. So that was quite eye-opening and educational. But also if you're between 13 and 18, one of the things that was uh, very good for me was that I, um, you know, as an athlete, you know, it also helped me uh, fit in. You know, in your teenage years, it can be quite challenging, you know, sort of with bullying nowadays or, or you know, feeling... Um, excluded and I think you know sports definitely helped me fit in so when I when I got there I did play um on the varsity sports um for, for volleyball squash and tennis um you know I think my days were from you know sort of 8 to 11 or, or 12 midnight uh, every, every day between you know fitting in all, all the classes and practice but I think that was a, a great launching pad to um you know the next several decades of of, of my career it's great that um, the academy continues to to do well and you know sort of produces um, you know these these successful people that you've you've mentioned. Now I feel like after you've mentioned them, I should be doing more to help to help and change the world. But uh, <laughs> um, you know, sort of, I still have probably the the next forty years to do that. So we'll see. <laughs> well, changing the world is not always a good thing. You can change the world for the worse as well. So <laughs> yes, yes, matter. yes. <laughs> <laughs> to put things into context again. During that time, Regina became the New England Prep School squash champion in 1997, but also the runner-up in tennis. Was this the point when you had to properly decide if you wanted to do squash or tennis? No, not yet, because I felt that I, I could compete um, at a high level for, for both sports. And uh, mm. um, actually, interestingly, Around that time, I, I went to um, another tennis camp. So I, I went to the Nick Boletari tennis camp when I was 12. And then when I was there, I think Anna Kornikova was in group two and I was in, in group three. Um, and then when I was in six, 16 years old, I went to the Everett Seguso camp in the, the in North Carolina. And, and actually one of the the girls that I used to play against which from the, the Thai national team. She was there full time and she was preparing to to play at Wimbledon. And she was like, you know, you should stay here full time. Just leave the leave Exeter. You know, it's it's great. And actually some of the, the, the pros were telling me that, you know, sort of I, I could if I wanted to stay. But I I was convinced that, you know, I, I wanted to, um, you know, go to um, a great university after Exeter and just continue on and, and play in the Division One. So after her time at the Phillips Exeter Academy, Regina went on to 
the University of Pennsylvania, playing as well at quite high levels. But having gone to these tennis camps, did you actually feel any change in the in the uh, the level of playing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think also because, you know, sort of at that time, then I, it's it's really strange when you say you're 18 years old and you're getting old. But in, in tennis um, years, you know, as you know, at that time, I think, you know, you had had Nomada Caselis, Jennifer Capriati, you had, you know, some of the European players all winning their first Grand Slam when they're 15, 16. So usually, like, by the time, you know, you, you start at 18 or 19 and playing at um, the Division One, I, I think it's usually, it's rare that any of the women uh, would, would turn pro. The squash team versus the tennis team was more highly ranked um, nationally. And the squash team, the coach, um, Demer Holler, and she, that one of the reasons why I also joined Penn was that, you know, she was the most decorated American uh, squash player in history, um, winning, you know, I think um, the record number of, of national titles. But she also went to Exeter. So I think that, you know, I felt uh, connected to her. And her goal was to win uh, the Ivy League and national team titles. The school had never won the Ivy League title nor the national title. Um, so she built to recruit and build a very, very strong team. And one of the things that I learned from from her is that you know the importance of, of a of a core solid team because a lot of other schools would uh, would try to recruit you know that flashy number one you know sort of exciting number one but they were very weak in in the middle part of, of the teams um, so by our junior year um, you know after sort of years of hard work and getting to know each other and having sort of the groove of things um, you know we had an undefeated season and also the other thing is I actually. By that junior year, my third year at Penn, I decided to stop playing tennis because, as you can imagine, my first two years there, when you're playing two Division One sports, you don't have any free weekends. I basically had no free weekends all, all year round because I was in the fall traveling with the tennis team, playing playing matches. In the winter, I was traveling or playing matches with the squash team. And in the spring, then again, I, I would be playing tennis again so I didn't really have much um, you know fun fun times in, in, in college on top of my classes um, and it was not a, a schedule that I could maintain so after two years I decided well you know sort of I'm going to put all of my focus in squash and um, and and it it paid off because my junior year we had an undefeated season we won 13 and 0 as as a team um won the ivy league title and the national the u.s national team title and that's you know that was the first time for for the school and i don't think it's been replicated since so that was in in in, in uh, 99 2000 but I, I remember actually it was interesting the um the night before our final championship match. So basically, this is the last match um, we would play to uh, to clinch the um, the national team title the next day. And, and um, you know, it's very stressful, high stress, and everyone, you know, for some reason was just uh, not in in the right um, mental. Um, you know, people were arguing with each other, and and so we had to have a little powwow at, at 9 p.m. And I just remember, like, um, you know, we were all trying to give each other a pep talk, and you know, I gave I gave um, you know the team just like saying, you know, I don't, you know, 
we shouldn't be fighting with each other. This is the moment that we've all been waiting for. You know, tomorrow we can we can beat them. And I knew that, you know, I knew that, you know, each one of us could could win our spot um, if we just, you know, sort of stayed calm. And and it was a great, you know, great moment because I think, you know, sort of everyone started to have cool heads um, and everyone delivered the next day, which is one of the things that you want. So I'm, I'm like getting emotional. <laughs> I'm not surprised you're getting emotional. I would get emotional. <laughs> so... Was that like, you know, lack of free free time, you said, spare time and the high stress, one of the, or the main thing that, that actually made you never actually think of becoming a, a professional? I mean, I do think it was more my self-awareness. I mean, I think it's important to know what you're good at and also what your limitations are. You know, you talk to a lot of, um, you know, coaching uh, professionals or even uh, career uh, consultants and a lot of them say, well, you know what, you should focus on what you're good at and, and, and try to sort of hone your uh, specialties. So because I think if, if I didn't, if I had different parents, maybe I went, I would have the other route where they would have forced me to, to play tennis, mm -hmm. but I had the flexibility to actually figure out what I wanted to do. So I think I was fortunate enough to have that because I, I do know other girls that I played with, they had different paths and um, eventually they quit the sport because, you know, they had too much pressure from, you know, their, their parents or the coach and whatnot. But at least, you know, I, I kind of learned that on my own. You mentioned the pressure factor. Does something need to change when we are teaching children or young athletes just to, to take some pressure out of them? Or is just pressure something that they'll have to get used to because they will have pressure when, when they become professionals? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something, you know, so you've, it is always a balancing act because you do hear a lot of those stories where you have, you know, young athletes in different sports that have such, such high potential. And then once they kind of get to that professional levels you know they're not ready yet or they burn out or they get injured and I think it's it's you know it's a mix of you know not having you know the right foundation or missing pieces in 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 certain stages of of, of their of their you know earlier on lives so I think that the technology and the focus on in that the psychology and, and mental toughness has, has improved the last several decades. I do think that one of the things that I see in the in certain professional sports is that a lot of the young people, um, you know, aren't also not educated with the financial aspect of things. So if you're 15 or 16, 17, and suddenly making all this amount of money or endorsements or going to these types of events and, you know, all these flashy things, you know, a lot of these things can be distractions. Um, you know, these things weren't around um, 10, 20 years ago. Um, and so, you know, I, I can't imagine any of these players when they were playing their sport eight or nine, they would be thinking, oh, I'll make X amount of money by the time I'm 18. I would have thought they really would just want to be out there winning titles, breaking records. So I think that's one of the things I think as, as um, you know, the different leagues or the different, um, you know, families and support systems have to make sure that, you know, they're also prepared, you know, once they turn professional and, and, and also get exposed to all the different aspects, they get eased in because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm sure they, they want to be, break records. And just moving away briefly from sports, at uni, you got a bachelor's in communications. 
Were you then looking to do something related to media initially? No, I think that, you know, one of the things that um, at, at Penn, um, they had, you know, cross-schooling uh, um, degrees. So the School of Communications and Edinburgh School, you could actually take um, marketing or economics courses um, mm. in Warden and in... Um, the Annenberg School, so both, you know, Warden School of Finance is, is um, world-renowned, and also the Annenberg School of Communications with marketing as well had had a had, uh, very high reputation. So the communications degree was the best uh, degree in the School of Fine Arts, or not Fine the School of Arts and Sciences, that I could actually take courses in both the Annenberg School and Warren School. So I wanted to get that cross-disciplinary exposure. Um, but yeah, going into to finance, um, you know, growing up, in um, the Philippines, and actually in the earlier years, in the 1980s, you know, it was it was martial law under um, the Marcos dictatorship, and at that time, you know, there was also a lot of volatility with the currency, certain privatization of, of um, certain um, companies. So um, you know, so there was a lot of um, you know political uh, volatility then, and that's when I was first exposed to. The importance of um, of cash. There's a saying, "Cash is king." In the right currency, and when you have a your currency like the peso depreciating significantly against the U.S. dollar, it kind of exposes to you to understand, you know, the risk of, of inflation, but also um, the importance of savings and investment. And that's what I learned um, actually through through my parents. Um, they always looked at diversifying their you know, the savings that they had, you know, invest in, in, in uh, property for rental income. Um, so that's where, you know, my first interest was um, in going into investing, um, was, you know, sort of seeing what I experienced when, when I was growing up. So was then at uni when, when you first heard of more in deep finance stuff that actually was what actually drew you to, to this world? Yeah, I think, you know, being exposed to um, people in, in Warden. Um, and actually, at the time, um, you know, I didn't really know much about fund management, but the father of um, one of my ex-girlfriends was actually a, um, a bond manager. So, you know, through her, I got exposed to, you know, that field of investing in, in bonds and changing, you know, sort of talking about, you know, what what he does on a day-to-day basis and then from there you know it was um you know it, it's one of those things a lot of times you know it could be in your networks or people that you meet um talking to people and I always felt that my time at Exer and my time at Penn it always made me realize that you know it doesn't matter the every person that you that you meet there's always a chance that you're going to learn something from from each other at the same time you know if you treat them with respect and and openness um the world is is so small that um you know these things go around um at the same time you can help each other in and in many cases you know opening up into to finance i found that it was you know having these conversations with you know parents of other people other colleagues or other students and and that's really what um you know piqued my interest because you know I, I found it interesting that you know he was investing not only in, in high yield bonds but also the debt of companies and we would have discussion of you know emerging markets and what happened in, in crises at the time and 
you know, when you think about the 1990s, there was uh, a lot of volatility in EM, not only in, in Asia, but also, you know, sort of the Russian default. So um, at the time, you know, that was some, there was a lot, um, a lot of volatility in, in the bond markets. Um, so that was one of the things that, you know, kind of piqued my interest to understand more about fixed income. And then just straight after uni, you spent three months uh, at Goldman Sachs uh, during the summer of year 2000. How was that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, one of the things with the American investment banks is that they have a very structured um, you know, summer internship program and analyst program. So it was you know, my first time living in, in New York um, for several months in the summer, being exposed to um, you know, very accomplished, uh, everyone was smarter than I am and, and did did more things than, than I did. I mean, I, I, I'm a better athlete than many of them, but still they, they did other things that were, were better than me. So it was incredible to, um, you know, sit on all the different desks, understand, you know, the difference in sales and trading, in origination, in all the different um, segments of, of the firm. So it was a really stepping stone um, before I, I worked full time after college. And how long did it take you to find uh, the nearest squash court in New York? Not not that far. I mean, you know, sort of uh, ironically, actually, a lot of people on Wall Street, well, most traders say that they play squash. So I think usually every time I join someplace, every some, some trader wants to play squash with me and he finds quickly uh, <laughs> that he shouldn't be playing squash with me or make a bet. But I usually don't. Um, because back then, you know, sort of Google wasn't that big, you know, in 2000. But um but I think, yeah, it was, you know, the great thing is in, in Wall Street, there's there's courts downtown and also in the in the um, in Midtown and Upper Upper East Side. So. Um, so, yeah, I did. I did play a bit, but my my schedule, it was it was quite intense um, there because also usually um, they would also that they would also have, you know, rigorous uh, training, but also interview process for for the next next position. So. But yeah, it was, um, you know, it was it was a it was a great experience. That's for sure. And then you spent almost a decade at Morgan Stanley. Um, how did you balance your your time as a squash player or how did you manage your um, your time in finance and still playing at a relatively high level? Yeah, I think it was it was it was tougher my first two to three years. Um, so I, I first started in their high yield group um, as a as a high yield ha- analyst. And if you think about that time in the U.S., it was the TMT bubble burst um, in two thousand one. So it was a very very hectic period. Um, so for my first two years, unfortunately, actually I didn't play as much, and, and it 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 was it was difficult because. I think that, you know, for the longest time I was, you know, doing some sport regularly and, um, but I think, you know, I knew that, you know, I had to basically cut my teeth and, um, you know, be in the trenches and, and sort of, uh, sort of, you know, pull those, those, those crazy hours in in the next, you know, in the first several years. And then as I, I went, um, got promoted and went up the ranks, I had a bit more balance. And also I knew that the, um, you know, knew more about, you know, balancing my time. So by by my third and fourth year, I started playing more. And that's when I um, uh, played again in the Southeast Asian Games for, for the Philippines. So that was in 2005. So f- up to that point, probably the, the year before the Southeast Asian Games, it was very hectic physically because I would 
start my days, you know, at like 6.30, getting into the office and then um, leaving the office and training for an hour and a half. So by the time I had dinner, it was 9, 9.30. Um, so at that time, it was... Um, you know, difficult um, to to have enough sleep. That's for sure. Um, and I probably wouldn't have been able to do that if, for some reason, I you know, if I had a family or, or children at that age, at, at you know, sort of early on, I probably wouldn't have been able to manage that. But I think, luckily, um, you know, I wanted to you know represent my country again. Um, I felt that sort of in in my mid twenties, you know, maybe my time was running out to to hit um, you know at that high level. Um, so I felt that, you know, that was, you know, um, an opportunity I wanted to take and, and the Southeast Asian games in 2005 was being held in the Philippines in Manila. So I also wanted to be there and, and also, um, represent my country and, and show that to, to my family. So that was, you know, a great experience to have, have the games there, um, and, and to have my, my parents there as well. But yeah, it was, it's always very difficult. I think, you know, something has to to give um, when you have these types of, of goals um, and you have to sacrifice if it's sleep or not seeing your friends um, or whatnot. So, so that happened. And, and I think that, you know, I think it's, you know, sort of, it's, it's a balancing act, as I would say. We've mentioned at the start of these podcasts that you played uh, the Asian games like a few years back. And there's a 15 plus year gap between your uni years as a player and this time uh, playing in the in the Asian Games. You've just said that you thought at that time playing these South Asian Games that you thought your time was running out. But I guess you then discovered that that was far from true because you indeed played the Asian Games, uh, was it 2018? Yes, 2018, yes. Mm -hmm. Was the fact then that it was only the, the second time ever that the Philippines team qualified in over 30 years too big a chance to let pass? Yeah, I think that it was. I mean, I think that... Um... One of the things that did change my, my squash level was that, you know, I moved from, from the United States to to the UK in London in, in 2007. And, and squash is, is bigger in, in, in the UK. And in, and in London, there's a lot more squash courts that are accessible as well as um, a high level of, of competitors. If they're not professionals, there's a lot of semi-pros and very, very high quality county players. So, and also the work-life balance by the time I moved over here was, um, you know, better. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, sort of in the past decade with my exposure to the different um, county teams, um, you know, the Middlesex County team, as well as the different clubs that I play in London, it actually improved um, my, my squash level, um, you know, the technique, as well as my exposure to different styles of play, both men and women. So even though I may have thought that I was towards the end, end of the road, I probably um, in the past decade uh, was more careful with my overall fitness, my eating, um, my stress levels. And that, that does uh, show um, when you're trying to perform on, on, a, on a squash court. So um, in between... Um, you know, two jobs from, from moving from Brandywine to, to Rubico in 2018. I actually delayed my start at Rubico to train um, with the Philippine national team and be prepared uh, for the Asian Games. Um, 
and they needed a, a fourth player, and and luckily I I, I was able to to qualify uh, and, and be their fourth. And I knew that um, at that time, that that was basically my last ditch effort to um, <laughs> be close to the, the Olympics because the Olympics there's actually squash is not an Olympic sport. So the mm-hmm. Asian Games, so the Asian Games, the Pan American Games, the Commonwealth Games are are the highest uh, country team events for squash players so um and as you said you know this is um the very uh, you know first time that actually the ladies team qualified for for the asian game so i i wouldn't i could not pass this uh, once in a lifetime opportunity and especially when i was i was turning 40 um and, and playing uh people less than half my age so i i um pretty much yeah, I devoted everything that that year to um to train and if you if you're listening to this you you would understand if you're over 30 or over 40 things don't really move <laughs> the way you <laughs> you want wanted to move you know your, your brain might be telling you to move a certain way or jump or, or twist and turn and and obviously as well the recovery is is horrible so i, I definitely um but it, it it exposed me to you know sort of you know these these athletes are, in, are incredible because they they give up everything for decades um, you know, to, to, to go for their dream, to have, you know, a medal to, and, and in a lot of times, you know, they don't have much of a financial gain. You know, these are many, in many sports, it's not like a, um, you know, professional career that, that can feed or support their, their family. So to, to, to be exposed to these people at the athletic, you know, we, we were in, in the athletes village, um, seeing, you know, some of the people in track and field, weightlifting, you know, many of the swimmers and many of these um, athletes, you know, this is the, 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 a year before, no, two years before the Tokyo Olympics. So a lot of times, you know, they, they would be, you know, this is the, you know, sort of another stepping stone for them to go to the next Olympics for, for them. So I think that, you know, it was, it was an incredible experience to see mm-hmm. these um, professional, you know, these athletes these elite athletes in, in the top of their game mm-hmm. i think you got to play against the malaysian team led by eight-time winner no eight-time world champion nicole david uh quite probably the greatest squash player of all time if i'm not mistaken yes um, she is yes what what other anecdotes you you have from from from, from the event itself yeah, I mean, I think you know, playing against Malaysia, playing against Nicole, who is you know at that time, you know, st- still in the top ten in the world. Um, we also saw the Indian team play, and they had two of their players also in the top ten and in, in, in top twenty in the world. So at the time, you had uh, six women in the top twenty in the world, and to see them play um, and their their dedication and speed is just. Um, incredible, and also I think it's also inspirational to the actual um, some of my teammates who were there because they can see the type of work ethic, the type of strategy, um, and what they're doing to to help. So you also saw some of the coaching staff, you know, what they're doing to analyze their competitors, how they're videotaping everyone. So I do think like for um, the different teams to have this exposure, like and to know what it takes to to be the top 10 in the world, I think it's, it's, it's important to, to have that exposure, but also I think, you know, in that, in, in the Asian games, I got, I got to meet, um, Hidalyn Diaz, who is, um, 
the first uh, Filipino athlete to win a gold medal in the Olympics. So she won the the weightlifting, and you know to have to see these people who are you know making history, you know, and they come from very very humble backgrounds. In many cases, they've sacrificed you know sort of their family life, you know, sort of even political harassment to or you know sort of to 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 win their their um you know to go for their dreams so like in some cases i think some of these athletes had to crowdfund their training um after the asian games if they qualified for the olympics so i think you know it that type of um you know dedication and and resilience is um is is pretty amazing to to see as well as especially many of them you know are very humble and they come from you know pretty humble backgrounds as well and just wrapping up here um as a fund manager and as a player do the your styles on each side of your life match somehow or are they completely different i as as a player you know, I've, i've tended to be a bit more aggressive in as a as a squash player i, I do like to to volley um but at the same time i do like having you know longer rallies um one of the things i've learned through time actually and I, i actually remind myself when i have um even 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 a match over the weekend is that you know sometimes i'm too eager to to hit a, a flashy winning shot but in reality at a certain point when you play um top top players actually it's it's the shots and points that have a more margin of safety and if you can can consistently hit shots with margin of safety that's where you can win matches and that's one of the things that i uh you know try to do as well when i'm investing uh particularly if you are you know trying and value investors that you, know, you want to look at um positions that have that margin of safety when the cycle turns that they're um you know gonna gonna protect um on the downside but also when when things are in upward swing you know you can reap, reap those rewards okay regina borromeo uh that's all from me thanks so much for your time today i hope uh you get to play another asian games why not perfect thank you